0: Question: How many of you listen to, watch or read the news? Anybody here today? Does the news bother you or frustrate you in any way? Tell me a couple of ways the news might bother or frustrate you. Have to use your outdoor voice so we can hear it. Repetitive. It's what? Yeah, repetitive. Com- repetitive, all right? Somebody said depressing? Things well. OK? Things aren't going real well, are they? OK? No. (laughs) I can't imagine that. Keep that in mind for a few minutes, will you? See if you can find the book of Habakkuk. Find Matthew first. Turn left five books. How's that sound? It's all those pages stuck together in your Bible. We're taking a look at a couple of minor prophets today. And I remind you on the screen what we looked at this morning, a lot of Christians don't bother with the minor prophets because they think they're not relevant. They think they don't apply to us. And yet you find of the reasons why we should study them that God's principles are timeless. And what he wrote then is just as appropriate now. And what he intended for them is just as necessary for us now. And so we're walking through Habakkuk tonight and going to see what can we figure out that we may need to pay attention to in our society, in our lives. Author is Habakkuk. His name means embrace or wrestle. It's interesting if you study the names of individuals that God uses in Scripture and that writes books, God knew what they were like before they ever wrote their stuff. Because most of the time they turn out like what their names are. And we'll see that in a second. He's a prophet in Judah right before its destruction by Babylon. The first attack came in 605, so it's probably somewhere between 605 and 612 B.C., maybe up to 10 years before Babylon comes in and takes Judah out to exile. The theme is a phrase you will all probably recognize. The righteous lives by his faith. And we'll talk tonight what that means and what the context of that phrase is in Habakkuk. But Habakkuk is a little different book than most. Because rather than just prophesying about everything, he spends more time asking questions than he does prophesying. Or sharing prophecies from God. And that's where the idea of wrestling comes in. He's got some concerns that he's wrestling with between him and God. And we want to see what some of those are. So in chapter 1, and he starts his dialogue with God, and his first problem is this. He thinks God's not paying attention. So it's the oracle, verse 1, that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So here's what he says, how, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Did Habakkuk see our news? Sounds like it, doesn't it? And Habakkuk is talking about what he sees right now in Judah what he's been seeing around him. And he thinks, God, you're not paying any attention to what your people are doing. I've been crying for help, and it's like you're not answering me. Things look awfully bad, and things aren't being changed. You're not delivering us. You're making me see sin day after day after day. You're not paying attention to how many bad things people are doing. There's no law. The law's paralyzed. There's no justice. The wicked have advantage over the righteous. This is what it looks like in Judah. What's going on? Are you doing something or aren't you? you ever asked that question when you watch the news? What's going on? God answers in verse 5. And the first thing I'm going to remind you is this. Have you figured out God doesn't always give us the answers we expect? We tend to think God's going to always answer a certain way. And when He doesn't answer that way, we kind of wonder what's going on. Look among the nations, verse 5, and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days. Look at that phrase first. I am doing a work. Please understand that. No matter what we see, no matter what Habakkuk's seen, was God already at work? The answer was yes. But he says this, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God says, Habakkuk, I'm going to fix things in a way that you wouldn't believe me if I had told you up front. See, we always think if God would tell us what's going to happen, we'd be happy with it and think this is great. You understand? No, we wouldn't. We would think the same thing Habakkuk's going to think. Are you kidding me? This is how you're going to fix things? Because what's God saying in verse 6? For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. Guess what, Habakkuk? I'm going to fix things that you've been seeing wrong, and I'm going to use the Babylonians to do it. They're going to work for me. Well, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? Well, then God describes the Babylonians. Who are the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own? They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Guess what, Habakkuk? Here's the Babylonians. Number one, they're an army that nobody can stand in front of. They move fast and they take things down. Nothing can stand in front of them. But look at some of the words. They're bitter. They're hasty. They're dreaded. They're fearsome. They've got their own brand of justice. They all come to devour. They all come for violence. They gather captives. They're laughing at everybody. They're guilty men. In fact, they're idolaters. Their God is their own might. This is who you're bringing to fix the problems? And I'm going to remind you something. When God starts fixing problems, it usually looks worse to us than better at first. And really you ought to understand that right now. When you pray for God to fix something, it probably won't look better for a while. It may look worse. But God's still at work. I'm still at work. But you're thinking the same thing Habakkuk's thinking when you see this list. Are you kidding me? You're using these people, and so his second problem's going to be this. God, you're going about this in a wrong way. I think, God, you've got wires crossed here. You don't really understand what you should be doing. Do we ever think God's going about things in a wrong way? You shake your head yes. You spiritual ones can say no. He's going to say this first. This is contrary, God, to who you say you are. This doesn't fit who we think you've said you are. And first, it doesn't fit the character you have. Look at verse 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Now, it looks like Habakkuk's just making statements. He's really not. He's making editorial comments. You understand that? So the first thing he says, what? God, you are holy. Right? You're the holy one. You're a purer eyes than to see evil. You can't look at wrong with approval. And these are the people you're using? How does that match up with your holiness? Secondly, you've promised to be our protector. You're our God. You're our rock, and yet you've ordained them as a judgment? You've established them for reproof? What's he say? God, you're our rock. You're our protector. You can't establish these kind of guys to reprove us. That doesn't fit with your character. Well, how about, does it fit with God's care? The way He said He's going to do His job? Look at verse 13 again. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with His net. He gathers them in His dragnet so He rejoices and is glad. God, you're not doing your job. He uses two words. You're idle. You're silent against these wicked people. You've man- left mankind helpless and leaders list like a fish in a net. And you're supposed to be caring for us, and this is the condition you're going to leave us in? Well, does this fit God's criteria? God's standard is holiness, righteousness, justice, right? He's already used two words. In verse 13, he's used a word you're looking, you're using traitors. You're using wicked, swallowing up the man more righteous than he. Verse 16, therefore, this guy, these Babylonians, sacrifice to his net and make offerings to his dragnet. They're idol worshippers. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? These guys fit your criteria for righteousness? I remind you, when we get upset with what we see and think God's not doing what He's doing, we tend to focus on one attribute of God over the others. Right? How can a good God let all these bad things happen? Well, He's more than just a good God, isn't He? Well, if he's got a love, he can't send anyone to hell, can he? He's more than just love. He's got other attributes that have to come into play. And so when Habakkuk is saying, God, this decision doesn't fit who you say you are, he's not thinking of God as God. He's thinking of the parts of God that he likes. Now, he's got some confusion in here in Verse 13. Notice what he says. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What's he saying? Wait a minute, God. The Jews are more righteous than the Babylonians, so you can't use the Babylonians against people more righteous than they are. Remember what we saw in verses 2 to 4 when he's complaining about all the wickedness in Judah? How'd those people all of a sudden become more righteous? It's amazing how righteous we become when we just compare ourselves to somebody else worse, isn't it? And so rather than thinking of his own condition, which he'd already figured out, he starts making comparison and say, wait a minute, God, you're letting righteous people suffer more than wicked people, and that's not right. Can I remind you why God chose Israel? They were such a righteous people, weren't they? You're a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And then in chapter 9, don't say in your heart after the Lord your God has stressed him out before you. It's because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me to possess the land. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them up before you, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart as you're going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations. It's amazing how your perspective changes about yourself spiritually if you can find somebody worse than you are. And then you think, God, you're treating them better than me. There's something wrong. Just like this morning, how good are we at looking at other people's sins, combating their sins, and not thinking of our own? Even though he'd just done it a few verses before. You know some of these verses. All have sinned and fall what? Short. None of us meets the standard. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed. Well, wow, the Jews are so much better than the Babylonians. Have they been? No. What's his second confusion in verse 17? He says, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? God, are you going to let this go on this long? How long are you going to let this go on? It's going to go on too long. We ever think that? Things are going on way too long. Well, he's got a third problem here in chapter 2, verse 1. Because now he says this after his editorial comments. I'll take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. God, you owe me an answer. And by the way, God, when you answer me, then I'll figure out how to counter your answer again. Because I'm sure I can think of something better. Well, that's pretty bold, isn't it? We'd never get away with that, would we? How many times do we tell God, God, you have to answer me on this. you got to tell me why this is going on. Remember Job? Did Job struggle with the same thing? Why is this going on in my life? I did nothing wrong. Had he done anything wrong? The answer was, nope. Did God owe him an answer? The answer is, nope, because God didn't answer Job. He never told Job why he was going through what he was going through. So most of the time, we think we deserve an answer, and God says, don't count on it. Now Habakkuk going to get some mercy. He's going to get some answers in this case. But here's what God says. Here's the challenge He's going to have. And starting with chapter 2, verse 2, And the Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets, so He may run who reads it. What's He saying first? God's saying to Habakkuk, Here's why you're writing this book, Habakkuk. First, I want you to write this down for anybody who might question me. You're not going to be the only one who's going to question that I'm using the Babylonians to take out Israel. But you make sure they understand what I'm saying here and make sure you don't challenge what I'm doing in using the Babylonians. By the way, can I remind you, it wasn't just the Babylonians God used. Did He use the Assyrians? Did He use the Persians? Did He use the Greeks? Did He use the Romans? How much we forget who God uses, don't we? So is number one, you can't challenge what I'm doing. Number two, well, when's this going to take place, God? It's about time, isn't it? For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What's God reminding us? Don't worry about the timing of things. The timing's mine. At the right time things are going to happen at just the right time. Not your time, not my time. Because we always think the time should be when? Now. And God says, don't worry about the timing, Habakkuk. I've got the timing down. It's okay. What you need to worry about, Habakkuk, is verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Be careful, Habakkuk, of your pride. Of thinking, you know better than God. Can you ask questions of God? The answer is yes. Can you question God? The answer is no. And in this case, Habakkuk is questioning God, thinking, God, you're not doing something right. And God says, be careful of your attitude of trying to elevate your thoughts over mine. And then he gives a condition. He says, here it is, Habakkuk, how do we handle when things are not working the way we think they should? When things are frustrating us, when things are confusing us, when things are causing us anxiety, what do you have to do? But the righteous shall live by his faith. If I asked you what faith was, you would have to tell me, my faith is what I believe about God. It's not just what I believe, it's not just what I think. That's not how I live. I live by what I believe about God. And he reminds Habakkuk, Habakkuk, you have to live by what you believe about God. If I were to ask you first thing tonight, which writers in the Bible were most important for Christianity, I doubt you would have said Habakkuk. But do you understand that this phrase is the center point of the whole New Testament gospel story? In fact, it's used three times in the New Testament, each time emphasizing a different aspect of the phrase. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this, "...for I'm not ashamed of the gospel." For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. What's the first reminder to Habakkuk? Habakkuk, your first responsibility in times where you have no clue what I'm doing or why is to live righteously. And the only righteousness we can find is from God and His Word. You have to keep being righteous. The second one's fine in Galatians 3. And it says this. Now it's evident no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it's written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What's the emphasis here for? That you should live by what you know. You understand in difficult times we tend to get paralyzed and think, I can't do anything. Or we think, what I do doesn't make a difference. Who cares? And God tells Habakkuk here, number one, your righteousness is important. Number two, you need to live it. You need to live. You are not paralyzed, and what you are living out does make a difference. And of course, the emphasis in Hebrews is the third word, but my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Make sure when you're living, you're living by what you know and believe about God. Some translations translate this verse in Habakkuk instead of faith, faithfulness. It's the same idea. You're actually following through on what you believe about God. How do I handle frustrating times, confusing times? Times I start thinking, which we all do, that God's doing something wrong. The only answer is this. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now, here's where God gives some mercy because He tells the conclusion for Habakkuk. He doesn't have to answer Habakkuk's question. Habakkuk's confusion about Babylon. But He does anyway. Verse 5. He's starting to talk about Babylon here. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. His greed, talking about Babylon, is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. The reminder here is his greed is going to end up causing him a problem, and I'm going to take care of it because of that. God's told us that more than once, right? In Romans 12, tells us, Repay no one evil for evil. Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Or this verse in Psalm 7. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his skull his violence descends. You like that one? Don't worry about the wicked that you're seeing around you. God takes care of it. For Babylon, their God, which is their greed, will be their downfall. They will go too far but you don't have to worry about it. I've got it taken care of. Then he goes on and he talks about five woes that describe what's going to happen to Babylon in the end. We'll just walk through them. Verses 6-8. to eight. And by the way, woes in the Bible, that word is not good. You got that? We say, whoa, that's good. In Bible, that's not good. Verse 6, shall not all these take up their taunt against him, that's against Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who, w- who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. God says in the end, those that Babylon plundered will turn around and take care of Babylon. Second woe, verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Understand, the beam will eventually fall on Babylon of what he thinks he's building up. Verses 12-14, to the third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city of iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Will God's glory eventually shine over Babylon? The answer is, yep. Remember what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar? When he's going to recognize who's really in charge? Remember Egypt with Pharaoh? Did God's glory shine over Pharaoh in Egypt? He's reminding Habakkuk, don't worry about it. My glory will overshine all of this. Verses 15 to 17, the fourth woe. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath. You make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, the cities and all who dwell in them. Again, the cup in the Lord's right hand will eventually come around to Babylon. Don't worry about it, Habakkuk. Then the last woe has to deal with the fact that Babylon were idol worshipers. They were false god worshipers. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver and there's no breath at all in it. Will his idols be able to save him? They're not even alive. So what's the reminder for Habakkuk? But the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is alive. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. You think He's talking about Habakkuk here too? Yeah, certain things Habakkuk, you're speaking out of turn. Remember in the Psalms, be still and know that I am God. And some of you know that be still is better translated cease Striving. Quit wrestling with me and what I'm doing. I've got it taken care of. It's okay. Now that makes it easy to accept, right? Say no. No, it doesn't. But in chapter 3, Habakkuk's going to have to make a determination here. He's going to have to determine how to be a righteous man who lives by faith. You got that? The first thing he does is pray. makes a request. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shiginath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Proper fear of God now. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Hard verse to translate, but really this is Habakkuk's prayer for Judah. He's accepted what's coming. Babylon's coming to take care of Judah. To bring penalty to Judah for their sins. And so here's Habakkuk's prayer for his nation. And he really says this, In the midst of the years, revive it. Or whatever you do, would you please preserve some life? In the midst of the years, make it known. Will you provide some understanding in the midst of this? And ultimately, in wrath, would you remember mercy? You want a great prayer for our nation? That's it. In what we know God's going to do eventually against sin, what He's already in the process of doing, He's already at work doing it. But for our nation, too, we should ask the same thing. Lord, preserve life. Provide understanding to what you're doing. And whatever you're doing, even though we know he's a merciful God, we can still remind him, remember mercy. Because bad things are coming. This is what Habakkuk knows. You got that? Then he's going to review from verses 3 to 15 God's actions from the past. And it's somewhat a summary statement of how God works. Some of the verses, you will recognize what he's talking about. Some of them will just kind of be a summary statement of kind of who God is and how he works. So verse 3, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. What's that plague remind you of? There's Egypt. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion and affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. We have some incidents in Scripture where God took care of Midian? Yeah. Yeah. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The reminder is, nature supports its creator. The sun and moon stood still in their place. What book was that in? Remember Joshua, where the sun stands still? At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. Did we have time where God had armies turn on themselves? who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. What's that sound like? Red Sea coming down on Pharaoh's army. What's Habakkuk doing? He's reviewing not just what God does, but who God is. Remember, the righteous lives by his faith, by what he believes about God. And first, he reminds us here in verses 3 to 5 God came with a plan. He came from Teman, the Holy One. His splendor covered the heavens, his brightness like the light. Before him went pestilence and plague. Did God come with a plan whenever he comes? The answer is yes. But secondly, he does some things that we just don't understand. Look at verse 6. His were the everlasting ways. Does God have procedures we just don't understand? What's he saying in Isaiah 55? My thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not. Please don't think God's doing it wrong. The Holy God can use anyone and anything He wants to bring in His plan and He'll do it in the right way. But His ways are so much different than ours. Verse 13, he always has a thing, something he does. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Does God always protect his own? Yes. If he lets them die here, they go to heaven. The protection's there. He always has a purpose. You crush the head of the house of the wicked. God, you always have the purpose. You will crush wickedness. We understand that. So notice what Habakkuk is saying. He's reminding himself of the God that he serves. Rather than just looking at the circumstances and thinking, God has this all messed up. The righteous shall live by his faith. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Look at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Does Habakkuk like what's coming? You know, God's allowing a lot of things now in our nation, but you understand things are coming that I don't think I'm going to like to see. It will not be pleasant. And it won't be pleasant for us who are still alive. We pray the rapture comes first, don't we? So Habakkuk says something that's just honest. I really don't like what's coming, but all I can do is wait for what you're going to do and that you are going to take care of Babylon. But then he does this. He decides what attitude he will have. And do you understand you decide what attitude you will have when you see things you don't understand or things that frustrate you or things that bother you? Most so you have heard these verses, 17-19. to 19. Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, He makes my feet like the deer's, He makes me tread on my high places. Look at this passage from the New English Translation Bible says it a little better. When the fig tree doesn't bud and there are no grapes on the vines, when the olive trees don't produce and the fields yield no crops, when the sheep disappear from the pen and there are no cattle in the stalls, and you understand that's what was going to happen when Babylon comes. Habakkuk knew what was going to happen. This stuff, it's not if it happens, it's when it happens. And when it happens, here's what I'm going to do. I will rejoice because of the Lord. I will be happy because of the God who delivers me. The Sovereign Lord is my source of strength. He gives me the agility of a deer. He enables me to negotiate the rugged terrain. The righteous live by your faith. What's he going to do? No matter what I see, I'll rejoice in the Lord. Or rejoice because of the Lord might be a better way to say it. Secondly, he said, I will take joy in God's salvation. You understand this other stuff we see is really nothing. What's more important is, has God saved us? Don't get frustrated at everything else. Remind yourself, God saved me. That the eternity is most important here. That's what Habakkuk says. The salvation is much more important here. But thirdly, I'll look to God for my strength and my security and my direction. Not to everybody else, not to my opinion. Because through these nasty times, God's the only one who can help us get through it. The righteous has to live by his faith. Look back at Psalm seventy three. We won't come back to a back, so you can let it go. Psalm seventy three, a different psalmist says this same idea in a little different way. Psalm 73, this is Asaph, starting in verse 21. And notice what he says. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. We get upset with God? But then what do we have to do? Change our attitude. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? You and there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. What are both these guys saying? When you're struggling with what's going on around you, please come back to this. Be the righteous who lives by your faith. Remind yourself what you know about God, what you know about His Word. Follow His Word. Live it out. And show who you have faith in. And you understand you'll still struggle, but maybe not as much. Habakkuk shows us we can change our attitude, can't we? Let's pray for God's help. Father, Your Word is so clear. We look at a minor prophet and thinking he has no relevance to us, and yet he thinks just like we do. And we need to think just like he did and remind ourselves that You know what's going on. You have everything in control. You just want us to be righteous ones who live by what we believe about You. So help us to start doing that if we're struggling there. We pray this in Your name. Amen.